This is what's called a stepped wedge cluster randomised control trial. It's actually about making every day really meaningful and purposeful. Even conventional or complementary medicines weren't working for them. Something is going on in the kinds of spaces that we are building. They kept trying to find something else. Think. Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Welcome to the show, Ellen Leavitter with you. Today, how females can get the most out of their fitness with nutrition. You get a really good picture of what's happening to a woman's physiology and then how do you apply that when they're actually in physical activity or training states and how do we manipulate nutrition and training around what's happening. And how midwifery at continuity of care is making a difference in Australia's Red Centre. But first on the show, you've probably heard a lot about Medicare this election cycle, and you may have recently heard about the so-called blowout of after-hours GP services. The after-hour GP service is a bulk build service that costs four times as much as a standard GP consultation, and it cost Medicare $195 million in the last financial year. The theory is that it keeps people out of the emergency room, but is this the case? Margaret Foe is the CEO of the largest medical billing company in Australia. She's also currently undertaking a PhD on Medicare claiming and compliance at the University of Technology, Sydney. So after-hours care, as defined in the Medicare benefit schedule, is, um, well, there's two different um, categories. There's after-hours, which is after 6pm for memory, and then there's unsociable after-hours, and that's between 11pm and 7am. So um, there's different categories, depending on whether it's just after-hours or unsociable after-hours. And then this is broken down into urgent and non-urgent. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So the urgent after-hours items um, pay about $130, something like that, about $130 to $150, and the non-urgent ones pay about half that. But they, they, they both, they all pay more than the daytime consultation services that, that GPs can claim. Which is $37.05. Well, that's the standard one. That's yeah. the item 23 that is that everybody knows. So yeah, that's $37.05, and that will be frozen for the foreseeable future. So what sort of people are getting urgent after-hours service? Uh, well, that's a good question, Ellen. I, I, I don't have access to that information. I don't know the breakdown of the demographic of who's actually utilising that service. Um, but it was interesting to see a service actually um, embark on a um, TV advertising campaign recently and that's the first time in all the decades I've been working in this area that I've ever seen that. So there was an ad campaign promoting the after hours service. Yeah yeah and I think one of the uh, features of after hours services is that um, traditionally um, Australians didn't really know how to access after hours care so what they would do is ring their GP or they would go to an emergency department. And GPs, to be accredited, have to have after-hours arrangements and they use deputising services and various other services to meet those requirements. And so if you called your GP, you would there would be a message there advising you where to go and that might be a deputised service that would um, help you um, after-hours. What, what do you mean by deputising service? Well, um, 
so it's like the GP outsourcing to another service to say you provide our after-hours care, but those services do also have to meet certain standards and be accredited. You can't just put your hand up and say, uh, you know, I- I'm going to be an outsourced um, out-of-hours GP deputising service. So th- th- there are um, rigid standards that they all have to adhere to. What sort of what can the doc the after hours GP offer you as a patient? Well, that is a great question um, because I think they can only do three things. If you if you think about it, they can write a prescription, they can administer drugs, uh, the drugs that they've got in their bag, or they can tell you to go to um, an emergency department or see the GP in the morning. So. I don't think there's much else that they can do. It's three things, prescribe, administer drugs, or say go to a, go to the doctor or go to the emergency department. Um, all they've got is a stethoscope and their doctor's bag. That's my understanding. I mean, I stand to be corrected on that. If there are really sophisticated after-hours providers now that are walking around with um, small ultrasound machines and things like that, and they do exist, obstetricians and gynaecologists quite often have these little mobile ultrasound machines, I think that's unlikely. Um, and therefore, you've got to be thinking about things like if all they're doing is writing a prescription and you can't get the prescription, you can't collect it till the next day anyway... Was that an appropriate spending of taxpayers' money? Um, if they're just saying go to an emergency department, perhaps you should have gone there anyway. But perhaps there is um, a valid argument for you know administering uh, acute pain relief. That might be appropriate. I can certainly see a need for that. In my mind, that is exactly what the after hours... I feel like the after hours GP service is keeping people out of the emergency department, but you're saying otherwise. Well, um, again... There's been some studies in this area um, and on my reading of those studies, there is no hard evidence at the moment that GP after-hours services actually reduces the incidence of presentations to emergency departments. In fact, there was one um, study that was published in the MJA in um, 2009. Medical Journal of Australia. Medical Journal of Australia in 2009. So it's a little while ago now. But it actually um, went to great lengths to dispel the myth that general practice after hours services reduces presentations to emergency departments. So that study came to the conclusion that it it didn't. Um, but I think that's probably what we need at the moment to have a discussion about this. What we probably need is some up-to-date evidence on how many of these patients who are using these services would have gone to an emergency department. There's another issue in um, information exchange. So oh, if, they, if they've, if you know, your family GP has outsourced it, is that information getting back to your GP the next day. Yeah. So that's a really important um, issue, which is continuity of care. So your GP typically will know a great deal about you and your health and your family and have been through that journey with you. Um, so if a, if a, 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 um, a deputised doctor, an out-of-hours doctor who doesn't know you comes out to see you, they obviously will not have access to all of that information. Um, And there was a study that um, demonstrated that 
after-hours doctors tended to use more expensive medication and I think there was an increased use of morphine too and that may not necessarily be a bad thing but um, because they don't know you, they have to do something immediate and, and treat you the, the best that they can. And there can be no question that, that, that these are um, anything other than um, appropriately skilled and trained doctors that are, do have your best interests at the centre of everything that they do. That's not the issue. But then the other issue is how do they communicate what they've done back to your GP the next day? So how does the GP know what happened to you overnight and, and those communication channels? And, I, and that is a really valid issue that I think needs to be the subject of a, a study if it hasn't already been. There's also concern that there has been an increase in people using this service. I think $195 million has been spent on the urgent after-hours care do we know why there is this increase? Well, um, look, I think you'll, we will continue to see an increase now that the Medicare rebate has been frozen. I mean, you, doctors are only human and uh, I just think people sometimes forget that. They're only human and they will protect their livelihoods. So whilst it's getting harder and harder and harder for GP practices to remain viable, they will look to other models of operating. And I think you'll see the rise of entrepreneurial um, GPs. Um, and, and then this is available. This is available in the Medicare benefit schedule. They're not um, doing anything untoward in relation to claiming under the schedule. It's there. And so, you know, it's a fee-for-service scheme. And, and I know that's it's simplistic to say it, but where there's a fee, there'll be a service. And where there's a higher fee, there'll be more service. So these... These fees are higher. It's harder to maintain a viable general practice. So I think you'll see quite a lot of this. I think it'll continue to increase. And I also think you'll see um, GPs um, closing their small practices and joining larger corporate organisations where they can share infrastructure costs. Um, And then you will get an increase in the corporatisation of general practice as well. So if more doctors are offering this after-hours service, why are more patients flocking to it then? Uh, well, look, I don't know. Um, convenience? Like, it's it's a lovely idea to have a doctor come to you. It's like getting home delivery, isn't it, you know? And I, I, I guess that now that if they know that it's available um, and, and people don't know... Uh, what they need when it comes to their health. So this is pervasive right across the health um, literature, this concept called information asymmetry, which is basically just a fancy way of saying doctors know more about our health than we do. And what that means is there's an unequal relationship in the room because we don't know what we need. We often need to go to a doctor to know whether we need to go to a doctor. Um, So you can't blame patients. You can never blame Australian consumers and patients because they're doing their best seeking out the healthcare that they need and uh, we have a fantastic healthcare system to support them. Um, People don't want to go to emergency departments. That's not a pleasant experience. There's long waiting times there. So everything about it is quite attractive in terms of getting someone to come to visit you. Margaret Foe, CEO of Synapse Medical Services and PhD candidate at the University of Technology, Sydney. You're listening to Think Health on 2SCR 107.3. 
Recently on the show, we spoke about the lack of women being included in sport and exercise research. Well, the same can be said when it comes to nutrition for women during training. Up until recently, women were considered small men, and the nutrition advice given to them failed to take into account the physiological differences between men and women. Stacey T. Sims is a senior research fellow at the University of Waikato in New Zealand. She spoke to us about what women need to do to get the most out of their training. Women, just like men, we have carbohydrates stored in our liver and our muscles, and this is what we primarily access when we start exercising. And then when we get into more of a steady state aerobic aspect, we use a little bit of body fat. What so happens though when we start steady state look- is like when you're working really hard? So when you're working really hard doing high intensities, primarily carbohydrate driven. Right. And part of the reason why high intensity exercise like spin classes and, and CrossFit and that kind of stuff actually strip body fat down isn't for the fact that you're using fat during exercise, but it's for the fact that you've driven up your core temperature and you have used all the carbohydrate in your liver and your muscle. So after exercise, your core temperature is up, which I guess dissuades your body for storing body fat. And the fact that you've used all the carbohydrate, your body tries to restore the carbohydrate. So you end up using more fat at rest. So it's the combination of elevated core temperature and lack of carbohydrate that really strips the body fat down with high intensity exercise. What about for not so high intensity exercise? So for endurance athletes, how does that change? Does it change? So in the longer steady state type exercise, like uh, hour, two hours or onwards, you use a mix of carbohydrate and and fat Um, because you can't sustain high, high intensity for that long. Your body's looking at how do I keep going? And this is where you start getting into the whole how do you fuel for exercise and the whole idea of X amount of grams per carbohydrate per hour to keep going is really a misnomer in the fact that most, if not all of the research has been done on men and primarily talented or, or elite trained men. Um, women's intestines are a little bit different in the fact that they have less ability to absorb fructose. It causes a lot of GI distress if we have too much fructose. So a typical sports type gel or something like that is usually a mix of carbohydrates of maltodextrin, fructose, and glucose. And fructose and maltodextrin don't sit well in the female body. When we start looking at fueling per se, women do need some carbohydrate, but different different mixture than what guys can handle. So this is where we start getting into a little bit of of the details of how women's bodies work differently from men. This is something we found actually quite recently on the program that women are left out of sport and exercise research. Is there any research at all in regards to nutrition for women in the sport and exercise field? There is a little bit coming out. So... You have to be a little bit careful when you're looking at it because what happens in sports science research is there's only a small amount of funding and a short amount of time to get a study done. So women will come in as part of the participant group and they'll be grouped in with the men and they'll be doing the same thing as the men. And then when you go to extrapolate the results, they'll just group the men and women together. 
and they'll say, yeah, this is a, this is a, a mixed gender study, but it's not really applicable. And the fact that when you're looking at using female participants, you have to take that menstrual cycle into account or where they are. Are they using a, a birth control mechanism? Are they well-trained or not? And the fact of that is when you're in the low hormone phase or the first two weeks of your period, and the fact that day one is the first day of bleeding up to two weeks after that. We're very much like men. Our core temperature is lower. We can access carbohydrate pretty well. Our plasma volume is pretty similar. But when we hit ovulation and then the two weeks preceding our period, this is where things change. This is where our core temperature is up around 0.5 degrees Celsius. Uh, progesterone is very catabolic, so we don't recover well. We tend to um, break down more muscle tissue. Progesterone also kicks out more total body sodium, so we're more predisposed to hyponatremia. Estrogen uh, spares carbohydrates, so we can't hit intensities. We can't utilize the carbohydrate in our body very well. So in that factor, in those two weeks, this is why women aren't necessarily included in sports science research, because it creates too many confounding variables. It's, quote, too difficult to study. And there's a group of us, um, myself included in this, where we're like, no, that's bullshit. You need to study women. Women aren't just two weeks of, of their cycle. Um, we are this full, complete 28-day, 32-day. There are these perturbations that happen, and we need to start investigating what is happening because so many women will go for this fantastic workout, and they can get this undue fatigue and feel like, well, what's going on? I'm not fit enough. When it's not their fitness, it's their physiology because of things that are changing within their body. So instead of blaming themselves or their fitness or not going hard enough, they need to realize that, wait, no, it's your body's response to what's happening to these hormone perturbations and it is normal. So do women need to be eating differently depending on what stage of their menstrual cycle they're at when it comes to exercise? It's not necessarily eating differently. It's just paying attention uh, to where they are in their cycle so they can recover well and they can fuel their workouts. Then from a recovery mechanism, really looking at what is your protein intake, especially within that 30 minutes after any kind of training session. Um, I'm not saying go have a huge protein recovery drink right after your training, especially if you're looking at calories in, calories out, and that kind of stuff with um, recreational athlete trying to change body composition. But having branched-chain amino acids or a 20-gram whey protein hit, which is around 80 calories, it's not a lot, but that goes so far with regards to recovery and building muscle and dampening down cortisol. And is this applicable to women who are on the contraceptive pill as well? Yes. The thing about an oral contraceptive pill, um, most of them nowadays are low-dose triphasic. So that means you have a step up of, of hormone doses across the first three weeks or your active pills, and then you have a sugar pill week. But if we look at the bioavailability of those um, low-dose hormones, it's still higher than what your body naturally produces. So women on an oral contraceptive pill tend to be in a perpetual state of high hormone. So paying really close attention to how much protein you're taking in, and in particular in and around your training, is going to go really far in changing body composition and allowing you to get better fitness adaptations. 
And then the sugar pill week, people will say, oh, well, that's a low hormone week, when in fact it's not because your body rebounds the first two days on the sugar pill week uh, with estrogen, which can be akin to the first trimester pregnancy. And all of this kind of literature is in the fertility literature, which isn't necessarily tapped into when you're looking in the health and, and sports science literature. So drawing from all the different aspects that are out there and pulling them together, we get a really good picture of what's happening to a woman's physiology and then how do you apply that when they're actually in physical activity or training states and how do we manipulate nutrition and training around what's happening. I know you mentioned um, protein earlier that women should be eating, uh, having a little bit of protein after training. What about iron? Because, you know, I've, I've heard it said a lot that if you have your period and you exercise and your iron's low, does that have any bearing on your performance? Um, so... Iron is a little bit of a longer conversation because it's not just iron per se that we have to take into account. Uh, what I find typically in endurance athletes, female endurance athletes, is uh, there's this residual inflammation that always is there because of the training stress and life stress. So there's an uptick in this liver enzyme called hepcidin. And when you have an upregulation of hepcidin, you can't absorb iron very well from the gut. So it doesn't matter how much iron you're taking in. If hepcidin is upregulated, you're not going to absorb it. So it has nothing to do with what your period is in training. It has to do with how can you absorb iron. Um, and women will be like, well, I'm anemic or I'm borderline anemic. And so they start taking iron supplements, but they're still not absorbing it. So that's one thing to get checked. It's not just a blanket need to take iron. And then the other aspect is you don't really lose that much iron during menses. If you are predisposed to low iron or you're predisposed to anemia, then yes, talking to a physician and taking a, a slow-release iron supplement during those five or, or six days of bleeding will help mitigate some of the iron deficiency. But the blanket statement of, you know, high training and being a female who has regular menstrual cycle, you need to take iron, is not doing justice to the female population. Stacey T. Sims, Senior Research Fellow at the University of Wakato, ending that story. And if you would like to hear an extended version of that interview, including how menopausal women should change their training, head to our website, 2SER.com forward slash thinkhealth. You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3, online at 2SER.com or on your favourite podcast app. In Central Australia, Alice Springs Hospital covers an area of 1.6 million square kilometres. And for many women, it's the closest hospital with maternity services. Some women will travel 1,000 kilometres just to give birth. A high proportion of women in this area are Aboriginal and experience poor maternal and infant health outcomes compared to non-Aboriginal women. In 2009, Alice Springs Hospital set up a midwifery group practice, or MGP, to improve the health outcomes for mothers and babies in this region. They set up two models of care. The first is for women who live close to Alice Springs. They are allocated their own midwife for antenatal care and labour, and the midwife will also see the new mum for six weeks after the birth. 
The second model is for women in remote areas. They will be referred to the MGP from their local health service, which will liaise with the midwife in Alice Springs until the woman travels to the hospital to give birth. Bernadette Lack is a registered midwife who has worked in the Alice Springs MGP. She's also researched the impact the practice has had on the outcomes for women and babies. So it's a 189-bed teaching, specialist teaching hospital, and it's the only major secondary referral hospital in Central Australia. Its catchment area covers approximately 1.6 million square kilometres and supports up to 60,000 people residing in Alice Springs in Central Australia, and that covers communities in both South Australia and southwest of Western Australia. Whoa, so it covers three states essentially? Yeah, and so the, the referral hospitals from Alice Springs, the closest referral hospitals are in Adelaide and Darwin, which are about 1,500 kilometres north and south of Alice Springs. And what sort of women do you see at Alice Springs Hospital giving birth? So there's women that reside in Alice Springs um, and then there's women that reside in remote Aboriginal communities across Central Australia. Because I, I understand, you know, if you're covering so many million square kilometres that you have to travel quite far to have have a baby. Yeah, so for remote, um, for women living in remote Aboriginal communities, there is a policy that those women have to transfer to a regional centre. So for some women that would be um, Darwin and for others it's Alice Springs to give birth. Can it create at the moment and during the study did not um, provide death services for women. So some women would travel 1,000 kilometres. Catherine also provides um, birthing services and so does Gove. So there's five hospitals in the Northern Territory and four out of the five offer birth services. And so for all women in the Northern Territory living in a remote community from 36 to 38 weeks, transfer to a regional centre for birth. So your research has looked at the outcomes for mothers and babies. What were the outcomes for the babies? So we had um, really lovely outcomes of um, low birth weight babies. That was one of our major findings. Um, so we know with low birth weight, it increases the risk of chronic disease later in life, and it's a key indicator of health status. Um, nationally, for babies born to Aboriginal women, the low birth weight rate is around 12.6% and for non-Aboriginal babies it's around 6 In the Northern Territory this is much higher so for women babies born to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women it's around 16% um, which is around about 3 times um, more than babies born to non-Aboriginal women Within the MGP our overall rate was 5% For Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women it was 7% and for non-Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander it was 3% and then with preterm birth, we know preterm birth is a leading cause of neonatal death worldwide and child mortality under five in high and middle income countries. Um, and it's a priority of the closing the cap campaign. So in Australia, the preterm birth rate is around 8.3%. In the Northern Territory, it's 11.1%. Overall for MGP, it was 6%. Specifically for Aboriginal babies. In the Northern Territory, it's around 16% and the MGP saw a 9% rate, so almost half. So why do you think the rates for preterm birth and low birth weight, why do you think they're so reduced in the MGP? So the international and national evidence on midwifery continuity of care shows, specifically for preterm birth, that there is a 24% reduction in preterm birth with midwifery continuity of care. 
and we're not sure why that is. So we definitely need some more research into that area to find out why, but certainly our results of our descriptive study were consistent with national and international research on the benefits of continuity of midwifery care. And Bernadette, what about the mothers? What were the outcomes for the mothers like? We know that antenatal visits, WHO recommends four antenatal visits for positive maternal and child health outcomes and same with early access to antenatal care. So access to antenatal care before 13 weeks. We know that um, preterm birth, low birth weight babies and perinatal deaths increases antenatal visits decrease. So um, in our MGP, over 90% of Aboriginal women in the MGP accessed five or more appointments. Um, and that's also consistent with NT data, that's around 90% as well, but that's a combined Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal percentage. Um, and we also had so the early access to antenatal care nationally, it's around 65.7% in the first trimester. In the Northern Territory, it's 71%. In the MGP, we had a 74% um, rate of early access to not, so early access to antenatal care. Almost three, three out of every four women access care before 13 weeks. Bernadette Lack, registered midwife, ending that story. Don't forget, if you'd like to find out more about anything you heard today, you can visit us at 2scr.com forward slash thinkhealth. We're also available on demand. Just search for Think Health in your favourite podcast app. Please remember that journalists are not doctors. If we've made you ask questions, go and see your GP. This show is produced with the support of the University of Technology Sydney Faculty of Health. I'm Ellen Lee Beater. See you next week for more in health research and news.